We're just absorbing the, this idea that nobody's saying out loud not to think, not to remember. You have to think in order to resolve conflicts. Okay, so that's a, an example of a conflict. The kid wants something, you have to say no to them. And you have to deal with uh, the consequences of that. But if it's a script, you know, if it's like something we're reading throughout our life, then it's like technology will think for me, remember for me, I don't have to think myself, and we end up with just a voice online that, that we have to keep up with to keep our followers, etc. Uh, so it's a trap. Consciousness, the notion of the self, personality structure, transactional analysis, symbiosis, Zen Buddhism, teacher-student, relationships, training yourself in how to think. To subvert is to undermine the existing system of inscribed power and authority. What's happening in the digital space, the virtual world. Much of us live in a hyper-stimulated present where language itself has become the info currency in the sequence of corporate capitalism. The injunction of the virtual world is... The gatekeepers of our speech and written word are global tech monopolies. We cannot transcend or go beyond our lack through craving. What are we going to do? How are we going to live our life? The subversive therapist is about what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. Welcome to The Subversive Therapist. I'm your host, Andrew Archer. Thanks for listening uh, on this uh, podcast what I'm going to do is uh, have a recording played uh, from a lecture I did, it was a public lecture in Mankato, Minnesota on March 24th. This is at the Blue Boat restaurant. Small audience of people, some which I knew. Um, we'll edit out the, the questions and maybe any lags in the recording here. But there's also a, a Q&A um, at the end of the lecture. So I'll have some of that mixed in here too. So, uh, same title as the previous one at the MSSA conference, craving what the virtual world is doing to us and what we can do about it. So have a listen. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks everybody for coming. Um, finally got the opportunity to do two of my favorite things, public speaking and drinking at the same time. So it's like, <laughs> wow, <laughs> it's all come together here. So uh, um, <clears throat> I don't know if any of you saw this title page, but this is essentially an algorithm. You know, it looks like the, the words are scrolling across the page and wrapping back around and um, coming back in as animation. But what, one of the things we'll talk about is that everything in the virtual world is actually just writing. And we're writing, and the machine is writing codes. So this is actually just do this, then do that. Do this, then do that. So one thing goes, you know, the animation starts, then the next thing. So even though the appearance is animation, it's actually just zeros and ones, a, a binary system that gives the illusion of um, animation. So, here we go. So how I start all of uh, my therapy sessions and of course meditation practice is with the prayer bowl. And that's how we come together. And so I invite people to just um, kind of center themselves and pay attention 
to their actual thinking. Um, the issue for me with the virtual world is that it does all the thinking for us and all the remembering for us. So we don't have to think, we don't have to remember, uh, <clears throat> but it turns out that that's a very passive relationship. You know, it's a, it's a loving relationship. I mean, that's basically the description of the talk is it's like this is our little baby <laughs> that we decided we're going to carry around at all times. It's the most valuable thing, even though it's just metal and glass. Um, <clears throat> so we start with a real simple question, <laughs> which is maybe the, the most fundamental question, which is who are you? Um, and I would say that, um, that we're all relational bodies. Part of my perspective in this talk is from Zen Buddhism. And in Zen, there isn't a distinction of mind over here, body over here. It's body-mind is the same thing. So what we have in common is that we're all relational beings. We all have a body um, versus a machine. The digital, there's no body. So the machine will never think like us despite you know, these kind of utopian ideas about technology in the future. Machines can't think. Uh, they don't have self-awareness. And I know this because uh, I read a book by Eric Larson called The Myth of Artificial Intelligence with the subtitle that, <clears throat> you know, why machines can't think like us. And the reason is we have intuition. So Lindsay doesn't have to memorize what she's going to say up here. She's just going to, you know, ad-lib and play it out. Uh, but if you've ever met a two-year-old, they rely almost exclusively on intuition, paying attention more with their belly than with their brain. Uh, so this essentially common sense is what the virtual world uh, or machine learning in general will never have. Um, and so we'll get into that um, more as we go. But the, the virtual world um, doesn't require a body. It just requires our input, uh, our language, you know, typing, writing things. Uh, and the, the trade-off, of course, is that um, <clears throat> our senses are being replaced. So uh, earpieces, you know, Google Glass, which fortunately <laughs> didn't take off. <laughs> um, so vision. Uh, and then the metaverse is kind of the last um, step the end of the spectrum where uh, the whole body is equipped with sensors so you're in this virtual space but you don't have to pay attention at all to your body so like I was saying consciousness doesn't exist without a body okay so it won't exist in a machine because a machine can't think about you know optimizing itself if a machine could optimize itself well then it would have consciousness but it can't it's reliant on people inputting uh, information. So the, the virtual world, um, <clears throat> I, I leave it kind of loose. I should say that I've been working on a writing project with all this information for the last almost three years. And, and so I'm hoping that what I'm putting together has kind of standing into the future. So virtual world, you know, maybe for some of uh, <laughs> the young people like us, <laughs> is, you know, email and, you know, Facebook, social media, but it's accelerating to where more and more of our senses are replaced. You know, you can, you can text with voice. You don't need hands. 
to, uh, to text at all. Hands-free just means we don't have to pay attention to that part of our body. Um, <clears throat> and so the, the, uh, the con of the virtual world, this is my kind of thesis, which uh, the virtual space is a want mode system because everything I want, I can get. Any information I want, I can get. And all of the things that I've wanted are tracked and stored in written code, data. So it, all the, you know, the algorithms, YouTube, Facebook, they keep us wanting more. And if you have kids, you know one thing, which is can't give the kid everything they want. It doesn't work. Uh, so it keeps us in this perpetual wanting. But the con is that if you get everything you want, then you'll be happy. You'll feel good. And so the, the gimmick is uh, that you can get anything you want. You know, all information is there. Uh, my five-year-old, you know, wants to know how tall the Statue of Liberty is. He's like, Dad, just look it up. <laughs> look it up. <laughs> he's like, he's, he doesn't even know what the internet is. He just knows that the, the machine has all of this information um, <clears throat> at, at your fingertips, you know. But what I'm going to talk about is even though um, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk for about 45 minutes, and then we're going to do a Q&A. Candace is going to come up and facilitate that. And I apologize in advance if I go over <laughs> the time. But so it feels like this is our baby, and we love it. And we, you know, we freak out if we don't know where our phone is for a second. But the analogy I want to make is that actually we're the baby. We only have to operate in this simple consciousness. And everything we want will just come, and pretty soon we won't even have to use our hands or anything at all. And so that kind of relationship is like the virtual world is a mother, and we're like an infant newborn baby getting everything we want and need all the time, which that's love. You know, if you've ever seen the kind of the unit of a mother and a newborn baby, but you don't have any babies, despite maybe what you hear, nursing and still going to college. Like you eventually have to <laughs> wean off, okay? And so otherwise, that's a passive relationship because the mother is doing all the thinking for the baby. So it's a kind of mindlessness uh, experience online, and that's what we'll talk about. OK, so not only are our senses you know, being given for us or replaced, but our attention is captured. And this is where I was, I was writing uh, this manuscript, and I knew I was going to write about digital technology. But I couldn't figure out what I wanted to say, what was relevant, important. And then our third child came in February of last year. And she's a few weeks old. I have one of those toys. You know, we're trying to pacify her, get her back to sleep. And so I'm dangling this toy over her head in the crib because I like to play with the kids rather than actually parent them. But uh, so all of a sudden, it grabs her attention. And so then her eyes are just tracking the toy. So I've grabbed it. I've captured it. And I was like, that's it. You know, we're captured by the virtual space. And that's why when I go into my email on my phone in the kitchen, you know, the kids' hairs could be on fire, you know, running around. And I can't see it because I'm in the virtual space. So we're pulled in just like I grabbed Vivian's attention and had it. Okay, so that's that symbiotic uh, relationship that's happening. So like I said, you know, of course, the, the appeal to this technology is that it does thinking for us. But now the whole, like I was saying, the whole body 
is being outfitted uh, with sense senses, so tracking information about the body. You know, there's rings now that people wear that are sensing heart rate, all of this information that Byung-Chul Han talks about here are being measured and tracked. So you know everything about yourself, <laughs> but you still can't answer the question of who am I? Because that's a relational process, that's a, a spiritual process. And so the, we think that the more data we get, then we're really going to know ourselves and kind of, but it's part of this self-optimization that's really grabbed the culture right now. And of course, the other issue with this is that this information is all being stored and tracked, and this data is being sold to third party, third parties, and then they sell us back advertisements. So we're the production, the virtual world, everything we do, including you know, when you pause on the scroll, or you type something in the time between letters, you know, these lags, that's all being written down. It's like if it was a relationship between uh, a parent and a kid, you know, it'd be like the parent following them around and writing everything down, and as soon as they stop and try and think about something, you say, hey, watch this video, <laughs> or, or like, check out this ad, you know, so that the kid is never thinking for themselves. That's the relationship, so it creates this passive dependency and so I'm going to try and uh, thread the needle between, you know, these, these real dystopian fears about AI, you know, taking all our jobs and the world's going to end uh, in this utopian vision of this is just a safer world. We should share everything and, and eliminate privacy, that dichotomy, and say, no, what's the virtual world doing to us? Nothing. We're doing it to ourselves. We're adopting all of this, uh, essentially, you know, propaganda about the world and it's making us more passive. And I have a hunch that this, this is happening psychologically because I primarily practice psychotherapy and virtually all of my clients, especially uh, the ones from this most recent generation, uh, struggle with not knowing. If they don't know what's going to happen, you know, it's kind of a notification society. You get reminders and reminders and reminders, which are really just saying, don't remember this, don't remember this, we'll remember it. <laughs> Mom will remember it for you. You don't have to uh, do any thinking for yourself. Okay, so let's run through uh, some numbers uh, quickly here. Every 60 seconds, YouTube uploads about 300, ho 300 hours of video every minute. Okay, so this slide will be two minutes long. That's 600 hours on YouTube. And um, you got other numbers here for... Google searches every minute, 4.5 million, half a million tweets, you know, almost 300,000 stories on Instagram, that's per minute. And how the virtual space is presented as this, you know, immaterial world. And you can just go on whenever, there's no cause and effect. But if you read Kate Crawford's book, and all of the references are in the slides, so if you want that information. But Kate Crawford's book, Atlas of AI, this takes an immense amount of resources, uh, mostly uh, migrant labor. Uh, Foxconn has a million workers in China. And so you have to actually, just like in San Francisco, you have to, they had to dig up the earth to make the skyscrapers high. You had to get all that material. You have to dig up these, these uh, minerals and you, know, you need lithium for the batteries, cobalt, all this stuff. That's actual material. So when you go, if you skip the lecture, Jim, <laughs> if you skip it, it's not like you're carbon neutral. Okay? You're actually using resources every time. 
it's intensive amounts of resources. Just the water and electricity to keep the servers cool. I mean, it's, it's astonishing when you look into these numbers. So is this sustainable 40 years from now for everyone to have their own media empire saved you know, in the cloud, which is actually physical structures? Um, <clears throat> so the average global internet user, social media, it's 135 minutes per day. You might think, oh, it's not that bad, no big deal. Um, I don't think I know how to go backwards. <laughs> yeah, you can look at the slides. <laughs> 5.7 years. If you take 135 uh, minutes and you stretch it out across a lifetime, 5.7 years. So if you think, oh, I don't post, and I, I just go on once in a while, six years of your life, what could you do with that? Okay, so I'm already getting behind because the slides are going faster. So here's, here's my, my thesis here. Here's Vivian. Uh, any of you that have kids know at six months, they explode, right? They're all of a sudden there in a different way. Okay, up until around that point, uh, this is what I'm saying. The user online is this simple form of consciousness. So with an infant, they don't think, oh, I'm a separate person. They're actually just reflexively responding to everything that's happening in their environment around them. That's why they absorb all of our uh, behaviors, our attitudes, and everything all the time. <clears throat> so it's not until, I want to say around six months, certainly by a year from most, that you have the ego consciousness of <laughs> my boys here on the right. So what I'm saying is that a user were in this very simple state of mind, infantile kind of state of mind, as opposed to a full personality. The kids, I've been you know, studying childhood development, working with young kids. Uh, the personality structure doesn't really fu fully form until four or five years old. So I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about transactional analysis because that gives us a model to figure out what this relationship is with the, the virtual world. Again, which is stuff that shuts out our present moment experience of what's happening in our environment. You get pulled into the virtual space. So <clears throat> the uh, personality structure, which is coming up on the next slide, is um, you know, the great achievement by Eric Byrne, who, who developed transactional analysis in the 1950s. Uh, and he studied, studied Freudian psychoanalysis. He was a psychiatrist, a medical doctor. And um, he came up with this much more straightforward, simple way of understanding ourselves. And one is, we have our parents inside our head. Can't get them out of there. Damn. <laughs> uh, I was at Cultivate dropping off my oldest son when he was about two years old. And when you walk in uh, to Cultivate, it's split. You can go downstairs or you can go upstairs. So Lenny wants to go upstairs, then he wants to go downstairs, then he wants to go upstairs. And I go, make up your mind, which is what my parents would say, make up your mind. What is it? Does that mean anything? It means I'm getting angry and I can't yell at a little kid in public. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can't do that. You look like a psychopath. So these are automated, you know, messages because the parent state conserves energy because you can take care of kids. If you don't have kids and you have a kid tomorrow, you would just raise them in the way your parents did. You're not paying attention at all to it. So this is very good for, um, nurturing and programming uh, someone. 
because the parent is externally programmed. So watching as a real little kid in this simple consciousness, you know, you absorb everything your parents do, you figure out how they behave. And those states of mind get stuck in your head as the parent that tends to be either critical, you know, what, what do you say at school and at daycares? You don't say, don't run. You say, walk, please. <laughs> Saying the same thing, but in a more nurturing way. Um, and then we have the, uh, the child state. Uh, and you can think of just the child state alone as like this simple consciousness. The baby isn't developing um, critical thinking until, you know, six months, eight months, something like that. But the child is like we have a little version of ourselves inside of our head because at some point, um, <clears throat> as we're observing everything that's happening in our environment, our parents, how they're taking care of us, we start to understand that we have an internal process where we can think about things. You know, a, a three-year-old, you know, they just start actually thinking, <laughs> not just saying everything you know, that's ever coming up at all. They just spew it out. They start to develop an internal process. So that internal process based on feelings and it's how we were as a child. It's childlike. Uh, little kids, you know, their heart rate's 125 beats a minute when they're around two or three. And you don't see any toddlers walking around going, holy shit, I'm having a panic attack. <laughs> you know, they're just like, let's do it. What are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> you know, my... Uh, my middle kid, who's three now, I remember when he was two, we're in the car, we're going to, you know, probably Target or something, and we're halfway there, and he goes, where are we going, Dad? And I was like, oh, man, like, he's been going through life not giving an F about where he's going or what he, right? He's just going with it. He's just going with the flow, no obstruction to it, no, I don't want to go. He's just like, he's just there. So they have no sense of time. That's why the child state is like the unconscious. It's like this laboratory uh, of virtual information. You can go into whatever you want to think about inside your head. My five-year-old on the way home today said, you know, when you go to bed at night and you're thinking about stuff, it's like a computer. And I was like, oh, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, uh, you can just think about whatever you want. You can make whatever you want, is what he said. You can make whatever you want. It's like there's no end to it. Uh, but the child state is much more about play. If the, if the parent state is work and um, caretaking, the child state is all about play. And when I teach uh, preschool kids a little bit of this uh, personality structure stuff, when we talk about the parent state, especially the critical side, is we call it grumpy pants. It's like <laughs> me in the morning before <laughs> I'm going to work trying to get the kids out of the house. That's like the parent is much more defensive, uh, posturing, uh, that idea of like knowing what is right and wrong. Uh, Karen comes to mind, uh, you know, the <laughs> COVID, you should wear a mask or you shouldn't wear a mask. Like it's all this moralizing is the parent because that's how you were conditioned in terms of what's right or wrong is the parent state, but it's prejudicial. It's black and white, okay? And so as, as you're probably formulating the virtual world is becoming the parent and the adult for us. What's happening right now and the frames of reference. You know, if you've been living under a rock, you still know that Russia's bad and Ukraine is good. It's black and white. And that, that sameness of the frame of reference, you can accelerate, you can get maximum acceleration in terms of communication with that same repeating the same. 
One's bad, one's good. So that's what I'm going to talk about in terms of this programming. It's not like we're being brainwashed, mesmerized. I mean, somebody asked a question about that last week. Um, I don't think it's that uh, sinister. So talking a little bit more, because this is where we're going to hone in on the, the critique here. The parent, adult, child. The adult is mindfulness. It's like what's happening right now. The stuff that, the pictures that are coming up in your head as I'm talking, the fantasies, the to-do list, <laughs> what are you going to do after this? Is the kid going to fall asleep or not? Uh, that's not as real as, you know, this piece of furniture, the temperature in the room, you know, the sounds you can hear. So the adult is much more objective. Uh, and whereas the parent is this power to condition someone, kids, they're, they'll just absorb all your ways of being. So that's power. The adult is possibility because you can choose what to pay attention to if you can get out of your own head. And this is what I try and do with psychotherapy clients and of course with the kids at Cultivate with meditation is get them to notice there's actually many more possibilities of things to pay attention to. And what I'm saying is that the virtual world has the power based on all of our data to control the choices, the possibilities of what we're going to see. You know, I watch a lot of Shark Tank on YouTube, <laughs> one of the most embarrassing disclosures I'll probably make tonight. Yeah. So it just gives me more, <laughs> more Shark Tank or, you know, I finished the U.S. once and now I'm on the Australian version of Shark Tank. So it's going to, based on what I want, you know, narrow these frames of references and what of course happens is it produces this echo chamber phenomenon where we only see the things we like and the people we like. That's the possibility of it. It's very narrow. Okay, so it's uh, the virtual is the control and the choice. Uh, and how does it run? It runs on our desire. Uh, the child state is potent. Um, if you've ever seen uh, <clears throat> a two-year-old when they don't want to go to bed <laughs> at night, the ability of them to say no to everything you want them to do. And uh, like my three-year-old, he'll like arch his back so you can't really pick him up. He becomes a banana, like a hard banana. It's probably too sexual, but like you get the idea. He's like arced and like it's like it's potent. It's like no, like they'll get angry. They'll they'll destroy things, right? You have to make sure they don't destroy things. Uh, so that's very potent, okay? And it's all child state is all sexual energy. If any of you are familiar with Taoism, uh, this is like our drives to connect with people. We con the little kids. If you're sitting with them, you know when I teach meditation, the kids just come up and sit on top of me give me hugs, they need to be connected because they're terrified of being alone. You know, you, they'll be abandoned really quickly. Um, <clears throat> so the child state is about connection. And one more, you know, simple mnemonic to remember this structure. It's like I was saying, the parent state, grumpy pants, moralizing. It's telling us what's right or wrong. Depending on where you live virtually, you had a very different experience of COVID, okay? Who your friend group was. Uh, the simple version is this is clothes and this is no clothes for kids. <laughs> There's about an age where they have no, no self-consciousness about, you know, whether they're naked or not. It's just, it's play. Again, like I was saying, it's kind of sexual energy. But the, the adult is a mindful state. And then the child state, uh, you can think of as you're, being me you're mesmerized by your own internal experience. So everyone has had this... Um, thing happened where you're driving on a road trip and you go through a town and you're like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't drive through St. Peter. <laughs> like, how did I get here? Because you were inside your head. 
It's a virtual space. We don't need the virtual world, in my opinion. We have it. It's called our imagination. Uh, so you get mesmerized by your own internal thinking, and then you can't be objective about what's happening in the moment. But so that state of mind amounts to a kind of student, is that you want to learn. Kids want to know stuff. You know, my son, look it up. Look it up, big man. Like, that's all he said. He says to me. And so they always want to learn, you know, new things. And Zen, they refer to it as beginner's mind. They're always open and curious. That's the state of mind. We're not accessing that part of the personality structure online because it's just thinking for us and telling us what we like and what to remember and pay attention to. The parent state, you know, is about knowing. So I could talk, believe it or not, all day about transactional analysis. <laughs> because I talk about it all day, you know, psychotherapy in general, that's something I know. That's coming from the parent state because it's intellectual and analytical. That's why I like doing these talks. Okay, but so if you want to just really whittle this down, we each have a teacher and a student in our head. Okay, so when you encounter anybody, they got something to teach you and you got something to learn from them. And so when I teach meditation to these little kids, Believe it or not, I don't have any clue on what I'm doing. <laughs> and I don't, I don't have, bring an agenda. I don't have a plan. I'm just trying to get to know them, develop a relationship. Because who knows, maybe in 30 years they come back and say, hey, I remember doing meditation and I had this practice. You know, so I'm, I'm trying to connect with them emotionally, not, certainly not intellectually about these things. But in order to you know, learn from people, you have to be able to concentrate. You have to be able to listen again. Stuff is coming up in your head, you're making connections to this stuff, but you have to bring your attention back uh, to learn. And if the virtual world is uh, doing all that learning for us, example, machine learning, if you're into this stuff, then we don't have to think uh, for ourselves. We can just keep grasping for whatever we want. Uh, and that's the title of the, the talk, is Craving, is that the issue with human nature is that we want for ourselves. And that this happens at about 16, 18 months. You know, the little kid says, gimme, mine, right? That's inherent to human nature, unless I did something terribly wrong with kids, is they want for themselves. And so that's an issue because we're self-destructive. And of course, we're destructive to other people. We're destroying the, the planet rapidly. OK, so here we are. This is, uh, <clears throat> this is where we really dive into it. The, the thesis here is that it's a symbiotic relationship with the virtual world. Uh, but with symbiosis, in a relational sense, it means uh, not two and not one. So if you think of somebody that's pregnant or has just had a baby, it's a unit there, right? It's not really two people, but of course it's not one person because you have the mother and you have the infant. Uh, so between two people, what you actually only have is six ego states. So you can see in this um, diagram that the mother is operating from mostly the parent and the adult because as most of you know the first year of taking care of kids is you make sure they don't die. <laughs> you keep them safe. So you're predicting what they're going to do. When's their nap time? Do they need a diaper? You know, It's not that you're never playing in the child state but for simplicity of uh, showing this again the user is in just the child state this kind of simple consciousness gimme mine whatever i want i get and so the frames of reference the uh the control over the choices of what we get that's what the machine does for us as a user so it's a symbiotic process it's a loving relationship uh, but it's passive because there's an asymmetry here 
the virtual world, Google, Facebook, they know everything about us. What do we know about Google and Facebook? Next to nothing. You know, there's no regulations on this stuff. They don't pay taxes. Um, <clears throat> just like a mother knows everything about the baby, when they were born, what time, their weight, you know, all these things, their habits, their personality. But the infant, you know, doesn't know anything in an intellectual sense about the mom. So it's an asymmetry. If you think of a mother and an infant, that kind of uh, difference in power and knowledge um, is huge. So, questions about this? We have only three ego states, which means one person between two people. And so with a mother and infant, that's beautiful, right? That's what love is. They're just operating as a unit, this relational symbiosis. But it's passive, because the kid has to learn to think for themselves. They can't nurse forever. They got to feed themselves, et cetera. And the adult state kicks in for the, uh, the kid with locomotion. So they start to discover, oh, I can pick up stuff, and I can grab things, put it in my mouth. I'm like moving. I'm, I'm separate, as they're starting to figure out. So this is the kind of trap we're in. The power and the possibility is what the virtual world has, just based on our desires. Everything we want, we get, and it reflexively gives it to us. Just like with a mother and an infant, you know, the mother produces milk reflexively when the baby cries. So it's that kind of reflexive, here, I'll give you more of what you want. Here, YouTube will put another video. Here, uh, Netflix will just play automatically. Uh, these companies want to get to the neurological level of anticipating our desires because it's that much faster. You know, you can just look at your phone and it'll buy something for you. Pretty soon we'll be able to think about it and it'll buy it. So that delays any, well, do I really need <laughs> that thing on Amazon? <laughs> like, hmm. <laughs> you know, they want it as quick as possible. Just get it. You're like a baby crying. Okay, here, take it. You know, pacification. So that's what the machine runs on. If we don't operate on it, it has nothing to learn about us. So that's the potency of the user, all of our desires. And of course, it's full connection. This isn't actual connection. There's no body. It's a simulation of connection with someone. Uh, and if, again, if you know kids, uh, they'll, they'll do anything for connection, especially when they're experiencing despair and things. Uh, so we're being kind of hoodwinked in that way. And to get into you know a little bit of the uh, more political stuff, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all these companies, Apples, we really need to start thinking about them primarily as surveillance companies, is that they're constantly watching what we're doing all the time, storing this data. Again, there's no uh, regulation on it. <clears throat> but it's not Big Brother like in Orwell's 1984. Nobody's putting a gun to our head. We've internally mediated ourselves to think, oh, we got to wear a smartwatch all the time. We got to carry our phone on us all the time. When did that happen? You know, this, it's been, a, it's a, in some ways, a slow habituation into this technology. And of course, the companies wait for a crisis like 9-11. They all switch to collecting data versus, you know, improving their services. COVID, uh, it's like, let's just do every, school virtually. Let's just, you know, meetings, work, everything can be on the computer because that's all tracked, it's all written down as, as a, a form of language. It doesn't disappear. So you can go back retroactively 
uh, of course, cancel people. Look what they said back in 2014 or, or whatever. What I'm trying to present is something very objective that across the political spectrum, you know, whether you're a communist or a capitalist, like this affects all of us and we're not gonna make it as a species unless we train these next generations to think because their child ego state is, you know, uncultured up into a point. I mean, I asked, I asked my son yesterday what he would, my five-year-old, what would you do if you had a million dollars or something? He goes, buy a bunch of stuff. Right? Where did, it, did somebody tell him that or did he absorb that from the culture that that's happiness, getting things for yourself? So uh, I want to kind of bring everybody in on this idea that I think it's a very uh, useful kind of social movement to push back against this. Not to say that we're not going to use technology, but how about we end the surveillance capitalism that's been well defined by Shoshana Zuboff, that they're exploiting us by convincing us to exploit ourselves. That's what I'll you know, get into. There's certainly middle ground here. We're way outside of, of anything. But so again, if you think of the, the virtual space as the parent and the adult, it's like the parent is like an algorithm. Zeros and ones, do this, do that. It's this binary system. Just like the parent, you think you're right or wrong about something. And COVID, again, is a good example. Everybody thought they knew exactly what was the right thing to do. Turned out, at least at the, the political level, no one had a clue on how to handle it. Uh, and the more information they got, the more off track they got with it because information is not a story. It's not narrative. You can add more information to your own personal conspiracy theory about what's going on. But what we're losing, I think, are any stories about like, how are we going to live other than in the next five seconds, what are we going to do? Right? It's like, what is our future? We need stories, narratives, and it can't just be let all doom and gloom. You know, war, climate change, uh, you know, police violence, everyone's just like, meh. <laughs> like, oh well, oh dear, what are we gonna do about it? Okay, so the issue of course, and this is kind of to Candace's question, is not only as Franklin Forrest says in his book, A World Without Mind, uh, are we giving this information to machines, but actually the organizations that run the machines. So if we trust people like Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos, which I don't have a lot of faith in, uh, we might want to, thinking about who has all this control and power over these, uh, these platforms. Uh, and my, my thinking, again, on this is that we're being uh, scripted, which is a transactional analysis term, uh, because it's a mindlessness uh, script, which again, it's like a parent following around a kid and saying, hey, watch this video, watch this, do this, do this, so you don't ever think for yourself. And if you're never thinking for yourself, there tends to be this ominous kind of fear that you're going to go crazy. And people are going crazy right now, and I have to suspect it has something to do with not thinking, not remembering. And that's the sort of injunction of the virtual world that says, don't think, don't remember. Just like in alcoholic family systems, uh, the underlying message is don't think, drink. So when you're not working, you're drinking. Uh, it's a kind of mindlessness. So nobody says don't think, uh, but that's the, the meta message. And again, if they do all the sensing for us, for our whole body is hooked up, then we don't have to think about any of that stuff. So this is really um, what I think about in terms of power is Han's definition, which is that power is really when you can 
get the person to internally believe that they're saying, yes, I want to go on Instagram. I want to snap my friend. So they feel like it's self-determined. Uh, just like I want my five-year-old to think, stop sign on my bike, I got to stop there, or crosswalk, he thinks, oh, I'm deciding to stop. But I told him 600 times, you got to stop at stop sign. So it's played out inside of his head that he has to stop at the stop sign. I mean, when did we decide we were just going to not remember anybody's birthday? Or, or like for me in 2012 or something, I'm like looking at Facebook. It's like, when did we decide that uh, we ha we're going to thank the whole internet for wishing us happy birthday? Like when did, you know, you're like, and it's your birthday, and you're like, damn. I got to do that Facebook post where I thank everybody <laughs> for wishing me happy. But like, when, we didn't decide as individuals to do that, right? This is this hurting, this mindlessness. It's like, we're just going to do that. Uh, so that's power, is that we say, yeah, I want to go on YouTube. Not the, the potency like the two-year-old that says no. We don't say, because it's so quick. We can get on. Like, the first thing I did to try and cut back on uh, YouTube was I just deleted it from my phone. And then you find yourself pushing where the app used to be, right? Because that slows down your thinking. Wait a minute. Do I really need to watch another Shark Tank? Why did I tell you that I watched Shark Tank? <laughs> so we've been internally mediated, okay, that we decide ourselves to operate this way. But that's what culture uh, does to you. And so Han talks about power as being superior when it's invisible. We don't have any faces or any ideas of who's running the show online. It's all... Uh, you know, a fog, blurry. Uh, we think we're deciding internally uh, to operate um, this way. So that's the symbiotic process, is they're controlling the frames of reference, these algorithms that tell us what to choose from, so that it allows us to just be a partial person, simple consciousness, um, like an infant. Again, I think this is a fairly scientific way of presenting that now, I love getting into the, <laughs> the political stuff and what are the implications and everything. Uh, but that, you know, we're a, one, a single person by way of the choices uh, and the controls of the machine. So, you know, of course, most of us go online when we don't want to think, right? It's a nice break from reality, escape into the virtual space. Uh, but now I was not spending too much time with this, but this, this novel by Dave Eggers is very good. If you want to actually know what's going on right now, his dystopian novel in 2013 is basically uh, realistic right now. So you have May, who uh, works at like a Google or Facebook. They got 10,000 employees. First, she's got a computer. Then she's got six computer terminals at her desk. So she's managing customer experience, you know, trying to get a uh, uh, high score on her ratings with businesses that are you know, trying to advertise uh, and things. Eventually, and it gets funny, of course, but they have a robotic version of her voice that she listens to that says, do you like this or not like this? Do you like this or not like this? And so she's responding to a virtual version of her voice. What does that do? Shuts out all of your senses, right? And so her issue is, that uh, whenever she would have a break from being online, she would have this terror, this like emptiness that she felt. She realized this anxiety was really about not knowing. So if we have this relationship where we know everything, look it up, dad, just look it up, <laughs> that uh, it's not making us feel more secure. It's actually making us for, feel more insecure, and it's a d dependency 
contract, just like a baby and an infant. Uh, and so what you're getting into is what uh, Zuboff calls instrumentarianism, whereas they're not, you know, like I said, putting a gun to our head saying, you got to track everything you're doing. No, no, no. We've convinced ourselves I need that ring that tracks everything or the smart watch, that that's just sort of the right thing to do. That's much more powerful than a kind of totalitarian system that's you know, heavy-handed. Um, <clears throat> so everything is about sharing. Everything is about transparency. So the politicians in the circle wear a camera, just like AOC now. Everything is, is online that they're saying and doing with this idea that, of course, uh, they're being more honest. You know, if, we, if we know everything about them, you know, it's not just their persona or anything. So uh, sharing is caring. You know, post everything. May gets in trouble for not uh, you know, posting about our kayaking trip, et cetera. Um, so what this looks like to Han, who I've been referencing, he's a South Korean guy who's lived in Germany most of his life. Um, he makes an analogy with uh, the panopticon. And this is where I'll kind of start to close out. A panopticon, I actually, um, because of how much I prepare for <laughs> meditation teaching with the kids, I said, I taught them, taught them about the panopticon. Why not? It's just a concept in the 18th century that Jeremy Bentham came up with was for a disciplinary society in terms of a prison system. So it's a circular structure, panoptic. You can see everything. And then you have these cells in the interior of the prison. So it circles around the prison, and then you have cells moving up you know, vertically so that you can have a tower in the middle, towers in the middle, so you have one guard or the warden that's in this tower. And the inmates can see you know, the silhouette of the guard. So they know somebody's watching. And the idea is that they will discipline themselves if they think they're being watched. So it's very efficient because you have one guard watching everybody in the prison all the time. You don't really have to watch them because they think they're being gazed upon. It's a constant gaze of the warden. Let's see. So the physical body is exposed at all times with the, with the panopticon, right? They can see the inmates. The, the doors are open. Again, it's a concept. They didn't ever actually do it. But the warden can't read people's minds, can't see inside their head in this physical structure, OK? So Han, uh, his concept is the digital panopticon. Maybe if I pause, it'll switch. The digital panopticon, by contrast, is we don't feel gazed upon when we're on this, right? No, we're just freely choosing to look at whatever we want to look. There's no gaze. Nobody's actually listening. You know why you get a, an ad for cats when you're talking to your friend about cats? That's just because it's pulling words and turning them into code and predicting that you need cat food or you know, whatever it is. Nobody's actually listening. This isn't you know, about being paranoid. But the algorithms are just comparing data with other people like you. Uh, and so there's no gaze with the, um, with the digital panopticon. So by contrast, the digital panopticon offers what the circle, you know, that novel wanted, which was to complete the circle, total uh, information. You know, there's cameras everywhere, these little cameras called the sea change program is what it's called in, in the book is that to complete the circle is to have full transparency, to know everything about everything all the time. So to complete the circle, 
Now again, there's no physical structure. We're not actually imprisoned, but we're volunteering to exploit ourselves. And that turns out to be much more efficient than a heavy hand forcing people to do something. No, we internally say, yes, I want to go on Snapchat. I want to look at my bank account you know, quickly, quickly. And so this transparency society is we're both the warden. you know, We're in the tower looking at everybody. We can look at all their information online at any time, right? social media. And we're being looked at. But again, it doesn't feel like somebody's watching us because this is just written information. This data is just turned into codes and statistical analysis. Um, but you, know, you don't have to raise your hands. Is anybody feeling rather burnt out these days? Trouble with attention, ADHD, uh, depressed? Like this is what happens, like with May at the circle, to constantly know everything actually doesn't make you feel secure. And actually my Zen teacher taught me something very fundamental, which is intimacy is not knowing. You know, there's something spontaneous that can happen if you don't have a set agenda, a plan. So that's intimacy. This is just information, and it's all training us to optimize ourselves through competition. Again, that's another word to think about with these platforms. You know, your Snapchat streak, your followers, your subscribers, you have to keep, keep it up. You gotta keep being online or that stuff falls apart. So you're in competition with everybody else on Instagram. You're in competition with yourself. And what are we doing? We're just writing constantly. No, there's never been this much writing in human history. We're incessantly writing to the machine, which amounts to we can know everything about everybody all the time. A transparency society, a kind of burnout society. And it creates this dependency because your, your friends, your followers, your subscriptions all hit the tank, you know, especially as a business, if you don't keep up with it. And that's why we all get hooked into this status quo. And it's the same repeating the same over and over. So, so basically, if you want to be famous online, you'd be the most boring sort of person in terms of political beliefs, because then the same would repeat the same over and over again. The other uh, issue with, uh, with power is creating a continuity of the self. So whatever you think of Joe Rogan, I would argue he's not necessarily the guy that started the podcast you know, years ago now. But with all that data, the user is the same across time, a continuity. And so uh, what you have on Facebook right now is uh, about 500,000, um, I'm sorry, 50,000 users on Facebook are dead. They got about 2 billion users, 50,000 are dead. And if you do the calculations, by the end of the century, there's going to be more dead people on Facebook than live people. Because the, 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 uh, the bots, the avatars, whatever, can keep interacting online even though there's not a human being there. So do we want to live in a dead world where this communication accelerated or do we want to have real connections? I mean, that's part of bringing everybody together here is hoping to you know, make community around these um, issues. So with everything made visible at once, uh, you can't really deviate. So just to close out, one of the stories that the kids uh, really like is this book, The Memory Police. So I start each session by doing a mindfulness activity with them. Then we meditate, only a couple minutes, and then uh, we do a story if they can follow the rules, you know, stay on task. And the story of uh, the memory police, there's this um, island 
It's a Japanese writer that wrote it in the 80s. Um, and this island has these special laws in that occasionally things disappear. So the people on the island wake up one day and you know, books disappear, or calendars, or um, roses. And so they gather up all the items of that, that specific thing that disappeared, and they have to throw them out in the sea, or they have this mass kind of ritual where they burn all the items. And if they don't do this, the memory police come. Uh, and this is a, you know, a totalitarian uh, regime. But they come to your house and they search everything. They make sure you're not holding on to these disappeared items. But some of the people can think and remember, like when roses disappear, they can still hold the concept in their mind. But the memory police want to take them away uh, to have total transparency, total control. So I think what's happening in the digital space is because 99% of all human records information is now digitized. And that's, what, that's only happened in a couple decades. I mean, it was like 13% around the turn of the century. So everything is turned into digital code. We're disappearing everything online. You know, when, it, when we're taking a picture of something, uh, we're, to remind ourselves, that's just like saying, I, I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> Click. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't want to remember where I parked, so I'll take a picture of it. So by capturing every item, we're actually disappearing memory thinking. And of course, at the end of the memory police and why the kids like it, I say, hey, you know, the, the uh, main character, uh, female, she wakes up and her arms disappeared. And so what happens is she, and then eventually the other arm and other parts of the body, but uh, all the citizens, they go out into the street and they're like, oh no, you know, our arms disappeared. What are we going to do? And they say, well, it's fine. You know, we got another arm. It's not that big of a deal. You know, we'll get by. Not considering that there's another side of the island that they could collectively decide to go against the memory police and move on. But they stay there until their legs disappear. Their whole body disappears. And the last thing that disappears is the voice. So you can think of this as a metaphor for what's happening digitally. Even though we think we, we know ourselves, we have all this information, to have everything, knowledge about yourself is to not know anything about yourself. Because back to the first slide, we're relational bodies. We're not minds. And the machine wants all that thinking just so it can control our choices for what we want. Uh, so it's not a great bargain here. And what happens to the, the citizens in the memory place is they become like the, these officers that enforce the rules. They come, become very managerial and emotionless. And that's exactly what I'm seeing in psychotherapy with clients is cannot deal with feelings, cannot deal with not knowing, terrified of not, you know, they can't call on the phone. It's too much anxiety. What's going to happen? All right, I'll stutter or whatever. So we become this sort of manager of ourselves. As we manage all this data online, it's like you know, when boxers come out with their like, posse of people, we're a posse for ourselves. And of course, with the business time, we're promoting ourselves online. That's a competitive process. But that hyper-individualistic idea, you never come together as a group for change. It's all about uh, the individual. So there's no collective action. Okay, I'll close here. Again, the injunction of the virtual world, don't think, don't remember. So I ask my students to think and to remember. We start out by saying our name. And if we're going to go on a trip to the zoo, what are you going to bring? I'm going to bring a backpack. Most kids bring fruit snacks, pterodactyl. It's popular. <laughs> uh, so they have to pay attention 
to hear what their friends are bringing, and they each repeat what they're bringing. So they think and they remember. They pay attention. The machine will do that for us. We don't have to remember. And so what I'm doing as a teacher, I was just talking to the leadership team about this, is I'm just being a mirror for them of somebody who can just sit and just be with them. I mean, they don't really know anything about me in a sense, but I have these deep uh, relational connections with these very sophisticated individuals, only four years old. Um, I think there's this whole ethos in the culture about how fragile kids are and, oh, we got to make sure they're not indoctrinated into certain ideology. No, no, no. Human nature is, for better or worse, very adaptable. Okay? So the kids are going to be fine. <laughs> we, we, we don't have to helicopter. Um, and so this is my, you know, conclusion here is what we need to do about this, regardless of you, you know, canceling or deleting your Facebook page and all that stuff, which I think you should, uh, any of you can go to your work, to a school, to an institution, like I did two years ago at Cultivate, and said, hey, can I teach meditation? Candace didn't say, give me your resume and how many times you've taught meditation. She's like, yeah, when can we start? Because people need this. They want to figure out how to study themselves better and to learn. So I'm in the process. I'm, I'm working on a, a second kind of season of this podcast that I did. And so right now, I'm in the process of connecting with an elementary school. And I'm going to kind of uh, record some of the interactions and the steps that I take. Because I don't think you will get pushback. People on the right, the left, and everywhere in between want to learn how to meditate. They want to learn how to think and suffer less. Craving, you cannot resolve craving individually. You resolve it relationally. Uh, so that's my message is to go out, to get a meditation bowl, uh, and to teach. You don't have to know what you're doing. All you have to do is build a relationship with the group of people, and then it will solve the problem itself because you know everybody has a teacher and a student, uh, and you're going to have to deal with that sort of uh, complexity of the human being. So I think with that, I'll uh, close. Thanks so much for your attention. And then I'll invite Candace up for Q&A. So thank you so much. Um, well, I'm always so like, every time uh, I hear you. Um, so I think if you guys have any questions, we'd love to hear them now. I'm gonna kick us off with one, just to give everybody some time to maybe think about what you'd like to ask Andrew. Um, and I have to censor my questions, because <laughs> obviously they're political. Yeah. Um, That's okay. But this really, is why I have a drink, so yeah, I can get okay, through them. <laughs> um, really my first question, uh, my background is in early education and working with children. So as Andrew, you were talking about this con concept of replacing senses. Uh, I was thinking through the framework of children and how these uh, exposures to the virtual world that they have, probably unknowingly, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. like when they're at the grocery store and they just get handed the phone to like, you know, sit and- Cocoa melon. Good. Um, how, how do you think that's like uh, impacting their ability to regulate themselves and have social emotional <clears throat> awareness of themselves? Well, it's certainly a great opportunity to not deal with feelings. I mean, that's why parents give them the iPad, right? Because they want things. Oh, Reese's, Snickers, you know. And so then you have a relation or an emotional experience with that. 
you know, you want to get through the grocery shopping, you don't want a meltdown, uh, so you just don't work with that feeling. You say, oh, it's like a pacifier, but it's a very <laughs> stimulating yeah. pacifier that you just put in front of them. Yeah. So they're learning to not deal with feelings because uh, that's what self-regulation is. Now, you could argue how that's happening or how sophisticated that is, but what I think is happening is this mindlessness script, which is almost much more worse, be, or much worse because we're just absorbing the, this idea that nobody's saying out loud not to think, not to remember. You have to think in order to resolve conflicts. Okay, so that's a, an example of a conflict. The kid wants something, you have to say no to them, and you have to deal with the, the consequences of that. But if it's a script, you know, if it's like something we're reading throughout our life, then it's like technology will think for me, remember for me, I don't have to think myself, and we end up with just a voice mm. online mm. That, that we have to keep up with to keep our followers, et cetera. Uh, so it's a trap. And, and what these, these ultimately are just advertisement machines. And to live inside, you know, if I, if I lived inside Maxim Magazine as a teenager, like in the metaverse, I mean, I won't go down that, that rabbit hole, but like we don't want to live inside an advertisement machine. Because all it's saying is, here's a commodity that will almost make you feel better about yourself, but we want you to come back to buy more of the commodity. Yeah. So that, that's the more political issue. This mindlessness is becoming Oh no, that's like something so I can compete in the, in the business space, you know, the economic space. And so if you're competing, that's where you become a manager. With very banal, no, no interesting out of the box perspectives, you just go with the status quo. And that is the most efficient way of accelerating communication is when the same repeats the same. So um, I've tried to stay out of it completely, but I imagine it's hard on a, on a real like large level to get away from Russia bad, Ukraine good. Because that has been like, you know, just merged into our heads. Uh, any discussion with nuance with that doesn't go, doesn't flow through, you know, telecommunication cables as quickly. It, 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 it kind of slows it down because it's a network effect. You know, network effect just means the most popular thing rises within the network. But it doesn't matter if that thing is white supremacy neo-Nazis or mindfulness meditation, it's just numbers. Johan Hari's book, Stolen Focus, just came out, and he's actually speaking at MSU next week. He's the keynote. And he interviews a bunch of experts about concentration, attention, and that sort of thing. And um, he's talking to some of these former, you know, Facebook types in the design and engineering, and they said, uh, you know, It'd be super easy to have an app, you know, or through Facebook to say, you know, everybody that doesn't drink specifically meet up at this place. They're not going to do that. Why? Because then you're not on Facebook. So they won't actually bring you together. That's all the, you know, the trash, like uh, public relations is about community and sharing a relationship. No, it's about keeping your eyeballs on the machine. That's all that these algorithms are designed for is to, you know, Netflix only competition is sleep. That's it. I mean, you know, and of course people fall asleep to, to Netflix and stuff. So it's all about keeping you in the virtual world. You know, there's incentives to be in there and now it's, uh, it's gonna be cryptocurrency and you can make money. And so it's anything to pull you in. Um, it's very, you know, seductive. And, and again, as, as models for this next generation, all they see us is, infatuated with this 
shiny, smooth surface glass, you know, it's perfected, but you can't see, you know, the nets around the Foxconn dormitories where the Chinese uh, migrants jump to their death or the, the alloy dust, the aluminum dust that they're inhaling as they're repetitively screwing in the same screw of these iPhones all in all. You know, there's all immense labor and resources that go into that, and that's all behind the curtain. We don't see that. Uh, so I really have, you know, in terms of political stuff, I have an internationalist uh, vision that we have to connect our experience with those, you know, people down the supply chain. You know, it, it's, it's slave labor, slave-like labor. I'm reading uh, Dying for an iPhone right now, and it's exactly that dual message. And you know, we want that so bad, people are literally dying. The way they're exploited uh, is incredible. So it isn't this smooth, frictionless process, oh, another new iPhone. No, people die putting it together, go crazy, you know, suicidal. Is there really any hope? Uh, on an individual level, absolutely not. But if uh, we develop a, you know, I was thinking before I gave the talk in Minneapolis last week, is like paranoid parents or something would be a funny, a funny little title of like a social movement that we're not asking for anything. We would just stay hard fast to, you know, F Google or, you know, like push back on this uh, virtual space so that at least, you know, our kids know that we're aware of this, you know, that, that so, not so that we can moralize them in saying this is bad, but if we have a, a political vision and we organize around whatever that is, you know, then it, it could be the 60s all over again. Uh, sexual revolution, civil rights revolution. Uh, yeah, if we teach them how to organize, I think there's very much hope. And so what I'm doing on an individual level, which is, which is nothing, essentially, is trying to organize people to sit and be useless for about 20 or 30 minutes, and that actually that can be a therapeutic to study yourself by yourself, not through uh, analytics, online data. It's a different way of understanding that I think is you know, superior, but I'll let you, you know, figure it out for yourself. But if we develop a movement around meditation that I feel like, I don't know anybody that's like, oh, meditation's bad. Like, around like, we want this next generation to be able to think and not be the zombies walking around, like Jim said, absolutely. So I, I, I don't know that I have, I have hope, probably more cynicism, but uh, that keeps me going. I think education has to be the start. Like, here's my idea about what's going on. I feel like it resonates with some of you. And then we say, well, how much advertising? You know, how much, how much of that do we need? Uh, is it really information? I mean, advertising and propaganda are the same thing. It's about changing our internal attitudes about what is a good life, not a good life. Um, so ultimately, again, it's up to us. Nobody's making us be a user in the virtual world. Some of us, based on work especially, are more coerced into it. You know, people have multiple smartphones now, one for work, one for at home. But it's all labor. It's all production. So in terms of social responsibility, um, there's none of it on the Googles, the Facebook. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's very opaque. We don't know what they're doing. I mean, you have to read these long books that I'm reading to get any sort of window, but it's all about capturing attention and, and capturing data. In the, just like the book, The Circle, they don't care what the data is. They want all of it. And that's really 
um, the kind of power and possibility is that they're getting us to convince ourselves that no, that's good. And how they'll do it, well, they'll say security. You know, we want to keep people safe. Uh, but it, all, it ends in a prison. There's no walls, right? It's the digital panopticon. We don't feel gazed upon, but we're still incarcerated, bombarded by our own ideas of what we want, but that's only a small part of ourselves, this child state that's really about craving, really about connection. So I think, you know, it isn't going to work to say online bad, real world good, but it's, I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, I tell Candace, teaching meditation to these kids, the best job I've ever had, <laughs> okay? Like building these deep connections, relationships, and we don't do anything. You know I mean, we literally sit there. Uh, it's not productive. It's a waste of time. Uh, but I imagine, you know, five minutes into this talk, you're itching for the phone. You don't want to be that person <laughs> that pulls out the phone. I mean, it's in our head. Yeah, and there's something we got to do about that. I don't have quick answers on it, uh, but we could start regulating these companies. They're, you know, some of what Candace is saying is these are utilities. You know, you can't go without water. You basically can't go without uh, websites, Facebook, that kind of thing. So why not, why don't we all just say, well, we own the data? You know, why, why can't we just run these companies like we run uh, utilities, which trying to privatize utilities too. Um, <clears throat> but we could, we could do that as consumers in terms of economic incentives. I, I don't need any advertising for anything. You know, if I need a, a car, I'll talk to somebody at Loggers or I'll ask somebody. You know, and that's the other thing with this kind of gimmick and con is that if we have any question, we don't turn it into a relational process. We don't uh, think about it for ourselves. Like little kids, uh, two, three years old, they'll walk outside and they'll go, Dad, I think it's going to snow today. And you're like, Where, <laughs> where'd that come from? They're using their intuition. They don't know how they know that it might rain or snow. They don't know that intellectually. They know it in their gut. And so we need to, you need to practice intuition. It's not just something like a, a bicep, like um, if you lift weights, you know, your bicep gets bigger. If you don't practice intuition, which basically means shutting off this part of you that says good, bad, you know, productive, lazy, those kind of dichotomies, is intuition is how uh, you can actually live because you just rely on other people constantly. I don't have to be fretting about meditation practice with the leadership team because I trust everybody in the room or whoever shows up is like, we have a relationship, so it doesn't matter. We're just gonna, I'm just gonna pick up on the cues in the room. So that's what I think is the deficit is we're not practicing intuition anymore because it's seen as like not scientific, you know, but I can, it, as soon as I walk into a therapy room with a new client, I mean, I know their personality. I can basically figure out what's going on with them intuitively because I've, I've practiced this on a daily basis using intuition. And that intuition is part of the, the child ego state. And uh, part of the, the child state is about craving, gimme, wanting, but the other part is just paying attention to feelings. You know, a, a little kid would walk in here and be like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Why are these big people all sitting still and, and listening and stuff? Uh, you know, Lindsay and I were uh, bickering, my fault, uh, arguing about cars uh, two winters ago. I was saying, let's drop down to one car. She was thinking about getting a different vehicle. And we're going back and forth. And I don't know, I was playing a game or something with her. I was like irritated. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, the four-year-old in the back seat goes, guys, guys, <laughs> guys, <laughs> mom, if you want 
your own vehicle, you can get your own vehicle, which is like the right answer, right? He didn't have to know, I mean, he didn't literally know all the details, the finance, you know, all the information. He was tracking the story that we tell each other, and then he just knew. That's intuition. He was, get your own, get your own vehicle. And I mean, he's right. I mean, so there's wisdom there in the child state because it's not cultured, it's not uh, conditioned. So it's, it's knowing without knowing. You can step outside and figure out, well, how's the weather going to be and take a chance and wear something. Or you can look at the app and it'll tell you with a percentage. But it doesn't make you feel less anxious. To resolve anxiety, you have to become uh, that lack, that, that sense of not being good enough. It doesn't um, go away by information. And again, COVID, coronavirus is a great example. The more information we got, do we feel more secure about it? No, not at all. It made us actually more fearful. Because there was no story, just cases. Um, so, Andrew, in one of your slides, uh, that one that had all the data, uh, it said terminal boredom and disasso disassociation. And I don't know if we ever got really into the terminal boredom, but here's what I've observed um, just from working with a younger generation of people is when they're bored, they quit. Right? It's not like, mm -hmm. when, like I was bored as a kid. My parents would be like, go outside. We get locked outside all day or... You know, find something to do was like the thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We didn't have devices or anything. So we, it, like, we had to tap into creativity. So we might have picked up a new skill, like how many, how many twigs we can collect. Or, <laughs> you know, whatever the skill might have been that we were developing. Now it seems that boredom equals quitting. Like, I, I'm just mm. so bored. I'm going to, like, quit this and go find something else that's entertaining to me. So Absolutely. Can you, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the attraction is we can dissociate. Uh, from that part of us that doesn't feel good enough or whatever is bored, you know, having an emotional experience, you can have an emotional experience as you ride the elevator or you can whip out the phone and not think and not remember. So it's, we're dissociating. When we enter the virtual space, it, it means we're forgetting the body. Um, and, and with meditation practice, you're focusing on the body. The terminal boredom, I'm, terminal boredom, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, it's a, a short story by another Japanese female writer uh, written in the 80s and it's this dystopian future where all the young people are unemployed and they're completely bored out of their minds so they don't feel they don't feel uh, comfortable unless there's a screen in the background or they're watching something this is written in the 80s you know this is before uh, the internet and so you know there's this little interaction with the main character and her uh, ex-boyfriend and she says well do you do you like me and he's like, yeah, I like you. And she's like, well, how? And he's like, well, the way I like myself. Mm. <laughs> and she says, well, that's a hell of an answer. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, you know, match.com. Or, you know, all these websites, we want to meet somebody like me. Mm. No, 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 no. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what you want to do. But that's the conditioning is like, you got to find people like yourself. Uh, and that's, that's a sort of what, avatar. Isn't that, like is, is that like human nature to find a group to... Your tribe, <laughs> people, people like you that you wanna. I mean, I mean, maybe uh, to some degree, but it's not gonna. It's not gonna. You know, for me, uh, middle age. A lot of my friends are in their seventies and their eighties. Okay. <laughs> so like, they're not like me. But I mean, we're all the same in a way. That teacher-student um, idea. But so what happens in this story is uh, there's a new technology where you can have something inserted in your brain, and uh, the real world feels like a, a dream, like you're in a television show. And then uh, 
then when your your dreaming experience is like a wakeful experience. So like this person gets bludgeoned to death, and this guy, the boyfriend, is like, "Whoa, that seemed so real." You know, he's like mesmerized, but he's totally detached emotionally. And this, you know, again, the virtual world is this unempathy machine. It was Franco Berardi that I think said that is like we're not learning to see how, yeah, everyone is like us. If you really get to know the person, we're just matching. I want somebody like me. That's very much a consumer uh, kind of uh, transactional um, relationship. Uh, and so, again, we get pulled in to the virtual world because we are separated from our body. And that's um, that dissociation, if anyone's actually experienced it, is not, uh, is not good to be chronically dissociated, disconnected, but then, you know, my clients, they come in and they say, I don't feel like myself. It's like, they're just, they feel like a character in a show, that kind of thing, and it's like, well, if you're 13 hours a day on the machine, you know, if all you're doing is dissociating, well then, yeah, maybe the real world would seem a little off. So I think that's where, again, that we're heading, is this kind of terminal boredom, and like, again, to use myself on YouTube, it's not even like it's fulfilling that boredom. I mean, boredom is usually just you're mad. When somebody says, I'm bored, or there's nothing to do, mom, you know, summer vacation, is like they're mad, and they don't know how to deal with not getting what they want. And that's emotional regulation. You have to learn how to do that. Um, so we can't be entertained all the time. That's, that's like an infant, you know, entertaining constantly. You can't uh, live like that, but that's what the, I think the con is with it. All right, well, I have one more question. And that is really about, you know, I, I think in the fast-paced world that we are all sort of running in, yeah. how do we make time to do meditation practices? And like, you know, I, I think for us as an organization, we took it as an opportunity to really work on that and connect as a leadership team and then mm -hmm. also now introduce it to the kids. But not everybody will figure out how to find that time, or how should everybody figure out how to find that time? Yeah, yeah, well, if you just look at that stat, 135 minutes uh, a day on average for people on social media, that's plenty of time to meditate. If you <laughs> even cut out a little bit of that, it makes me think of, you know, the Screen Time app on, on Apple. I'm, I'm probably more cynical than Chris, but why would they put Screen Time on there to show you how much you're using it? Well, because they know you'll turn it off, or you won't look at it. You know, so we, you're going you're gonna to have to make an active effort. I mean, I quit Facebook when I was in a networking group at the time, and you kind of needed to be on Facebook. Uh, no regrets about that, uh, but you're going to have to, nobody's going to invite you to do it. But, you know, with, with friends of yours or whatever, I'm cutting back. Anything uh, you can chisel away at. The other thing, you know, we didn't talk really in details about the meditation, but meditation is just non-doing. I wrote an article for the Cultivate's online magazine. You know, uh, it's in the references on here and stuff. But um, people shy away from it because they think, "Well, I can't slow down my mind. I can't, you know, I can't focus. Whatever." Meditation is just not doing something. You know, there's formal postures that I teach the kids and like my clients how to sit, but it's it's literally just sitting and doing nothing. Now, of course, you got a smartwatch. Now you can you can monitor and measure. Your, your meditation and get a high score. You know, I, I push the limits here. And that's what I hear from clients too. Uh, it wasn't good, that session. It's not about good or bad, is you're just sitting and paying attention to your own attention. It's something a cat and a dog can't do. We can do that, and that's why we suffer 
immensely because we can think out in the future, is there any hope? We can look at our past. Uh, <clears throat> but you can actually just sit and notice, and you don't have to have you know, the Headspace app, you don't need to have headphones in, you can sit in the park or whatever, but you gotta find a, a teacher, you gotta find somebody that, that knows a little bit about it, but learn from them, but take it out into the world. There's no point in just sitting in your room meditating by yourself. I mean, in some ways, that's what uh, this, this digital system wants, is us to be passive. It's a pacification project, you know, that we're alone with ourselves, focusing on ourselves. So let's start groups. I mean, why can't there be a meditation group each night of the week in Mankato? I mean, there's enough people in this room that we could start that. It, very little capital <laughs> investment in a meditation group. You get a prayer bowl, you get some cushions or chairs. You can sit in a chair, but it's really about creating community so that we can make these ripples out into the, the world and teaching people that there's other ways of being. You know, uh, people didn't just stop smoking all of a sudden a hundred years ago when they knew that it was cancerous. It's like, you gotta, you gotta model it. People have to realize that other people are interested that this is something that's a therapeutic. You know, the Buddha was basically a psychotherapist. He said, here's a tool, the Eightfold Path, the Buddhist you know, teachings and things. I'm not saying that it works or it's right. It's just like, this is what I use. Try it out, figure it out. You know, there's no beliefs, but we need some sort of uh, a secular um, therapeutic. Uh, you know, there's no way that um, the, the old Abrahamic religions are gonna be able to, we can't just uh, spread that to everybody because everybody's got their own beliefs about it and their own beliefs about patriarchy and authority and stuff. But Zen is really a philosophy, a psychology. And so a secular meditation practice, and I combine it with this personality structure of TA, I think offers a way, and I run groups as well, uh, psychotherapy groups. And the idea I have with these groups is that the groups are going to run themselves, independent of me, eventually. And so we're going to need groups. We can't, can't solve the world's problems by each person having an individual therapist. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But we're going to have to make collective actions a uh, priority. And again, <clears throat> if, if there's an ideology um, that's sort of passively promoted, it's all about the individual. It's all about the self. And yeah, individuality is important. Certainly, uh, certain governments are not allowing and censoring, but there's, there's more to life than the story you tell yourself about who you are. And you don't figure that out by yourself. You figure it out relationally in a group process, a, a community kind of engagement. Yeah, well, and one final thought to that, I just, I do love the meditative practice with the transactional analysis because I think it goes beyond just like maybe what you would think of like a traditional meditation, like where you're like, um, like you can like keep your eyes open, you look for, watch, listen to the sounds of the flag, you know, as we were, uh, you can walk in meditative groups. Yeah. You know, like that was just so awesome because it made it very, very accessible and like nothing, like just being with people yeah and yeah there's no it's not rocket science you yeah. just sit down and yeah. listen and pay attention to what's going on I mean uh, that's it yeah yeah great any other questions from the audience Andrew anything that you want to add thanks so much for coming this is really fun for me thanks again awesome well final round of applause <laughs> thanks, thanks.